Our Gospel reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. And what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. As I was studying and engaging in the process of exegesis that I used to write my sermon, I was having a difficult time concentrating on Thursday morning. I was sitting on our porch, as I often do to write, and the garden birds seemed particularly busy that morning. I was especially distracted by a pair of bluebirds that arrived to check out the little wooden nesting box that Lon had made and nailed up by our arbor gate. The male perched and peered into the inch-wide hole 
for a little while, his whole upper body quite disappearing into the box. Then he hopped aside while his wife did the same. She then perched on the militia vines for a time while he took another look. And this process went on for four or five cycles. First the male, then the female, as if they were prospective tenants of a new apartment checking out the amenities. Then they left, and they haven't returned to my knowledge, but I'm hopeful that they or another pair might nest there this spring. And I thought, this is God's world. The news tells me over and over how troubled God's world is, but it is so much more. It is beauty and truth and life and an incredible energy that leads us ever forward, a continuing creation of goodness. The phrase born again is so well known in Christian conversation that we might easily forget that it comes from a metaphor that Christ was using to describe to Nicodemus just what a person must do in order to see the kingdom of God. Now, Christ doesn't actually say we must be born again, but that we must be born from above. It surprised me that Jesus doesn't use the term born again. We hear that term so often. Um, I actually went back to the Greek, and just to be sure that the NRSV version was accurate on this point, and to be sure it is. Jesus' words are very clearly born from above. Nicodemus doesn't use the term born again, but he implies it when he asks if one can re-enter the womb and be born a second time. So the phrase really is, should be associated with Nicodemus there. However, Jesus is using this metaphor of birth with all the surrounding images that that brings to mind. It's not that unusual to find labor and birth imagery in both the Old and New Testaments. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 18, we hear of God, hear that the God who gives birth. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. And then in Isaiah 42, verse 14, we see God as a woman in labor. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept myself still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. And then again from Galatians, the New Testament, from Galatians 4, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Giving birth is accurately named labor. By the way, I did not write this sermon <laughs> because of Elizabeth this week, but I was writing it probably just when she was in labor. So it's accurately named labor, as any woman who has given birth knows, and as any father 
who has fervently wished he could share the pains of labor, knows also. Labor can be a long, intense, exhausting, and also beautiful process. Frequently, though not always, with a wonderfully rewarding outcome. It's a woman's image, and in using it, Jesus is deliberately including people who would often be excluded from theological conversation. Each time the image of labor is included, the female aspects of God are revealed. Now this is a fascinating topic but it's not the overall emphasis of this text. Since Jesus actually uses this image at this time from the infant's point of view. It's probably a good thing that human memory doesn't allow us to remember the time of our birth. If it's a tough job for the mother to give birth, the process must be filled with all kinds of sensations and dangers for the baby being born. No one is surprised that the child's first sound is a heart-rending cry that seems to say, help me, I'm lost and lonely and in need of comfort in this world. Jesus telling us that we must be born from above of water and the spirit is saying that to take a spiritual perspective on life is not an easy process. It's like a birth where we're involved in an arduous process beyond our own control with no choice but to trust in the goodness of God and the drive of life itself for our entry into the waiting world. This is what our coming to God is like. It's the turbulent waters of baptism. It's the fire of the Holy Spirit. We are washed clean in the waters, then set alight to see and live the kingdom of God. It's so much more than words can express. Indeed, Jesus berates Nicodemus for his literalism in responding to him. Why does he take Jesus' image of being born and apply it literally? Is he trying to make a mockery of Jesus' words? Does he really not understand? People talk in metaphor and image all the time. If I tell a friend who's considering ending her marriage, if I tell her that's a hard road she's going down, does she ask me for directions? Does she consult her Google Maps app? Or if I say my little grandson is the apple of my eye, would you ask me if I had a vision problem? No, we know what it is to talk in metaphor. Jesus has every right to show frustration with Nicodemus, who is, after all, a leader of the Jews and should certainly know about the use of metaphor and imagery in conversations concerning the divine. And then Jesus uses yet another wonderful metaphor, that of Moses and the snake. Here he's referring to the story from Numbers, 
where God had sent snakes to punish the errant Israelites. God instructs Moses to create a bronze snake and set it up high. Whenever someone was bitten, they would look at the snake and be saved from death. Jesus tells Nicodemus, I'm trying to put these truths into language you can understand. By comparing the life of the Spirit to earthly experiences. But if you don't even understand the implications of these earthly matters I'm talking about, how can you hope to understand matters of the divine? And you, Nicodemus, a man of God. Jesus asks him, how can you have a hope to truly believe if you don't have the imagination and the faith to enter God's realm? Jesus wants Nicodemus to know that to see the kingdom of God, we must develop a whole new frame of reference, go through a spiritual birth, and then marvel at the possibilities this new life in God gives to us. The Jesus of the Gospel of John is generally considered to be portrayed differently from the way he's shown in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. New Testament scholar Carl Holliday writes of John's portrait of the divine Jesus who barely skated the surface of humanity. By the way, that's another wonderful metaphor, isn't it? Jesus speaks frequently and sometimes enigmatically about the divine, about spiritual matters, matters that often seem beyond the comprehension of the disciples. And yet, Jesus is completely engaged with the world and all its needs. His very first miracle is the changing of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. How much more engaged with the earthly world can you get? Yes, we are to become creatures of the Spirit, but in doing so, we are not to leave behind our earthly selves. Nor are we even to think that this life is simply a preparation for the world to come. What we are here to do is engage with this world, but see our engagement as a spiritual path in and of itself. Jesus does not say that we have to wait to die in order to see the kingdom of God, but that we must be born of water and the Spirit, and then we will see all the possibilities that this life, here and now, offers to us. Sometimes people will believe that the world and worldly things are inherently evil, as if earthly matters are in some way demonic and that God only claims the heavenly realm. Many Christians only focus 
on the saving death and resurrection of Jesus, emphasizing only personal salvation and setting aside, it seems, the life of Jesus. Jesus saves us from sin, of course, yes, but he also saved people from hunger, from illness, from crippling mental disorders, from shame, from isolation, from death by stoning. Jesus saved them while they were alive on this earth. He did not tell the suffering, paralyzed man that his suffering would prepare him better for heaven. He cured him so that he could re-engage with life and community. The world is good. Life is good. Yes, things go terribly wrong sometimes, but life still calls us and the world still needs us. This is the world that God so loved. God does not despise this world nor the things of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. There is no magic moment when we die that we enter into the state of eternal life. It begins now, in this moment, and in every moment that we are given by God. In every moment we have, we can choose to perish. That is, we can turn away from, the, from life. We can choose the path that leads away from God, that celebrates the negative, destruction, corruption. Or we can choose to live always, taking those God-given paths that enliven and enlighten the world for ourselves and for others. This is a vital part of our Lenten journey as we follow Christ to the cross and as we pray and meditate upon Christ's will for us. Can we be born of the Spirit as Jesus says we must? Can we daily hourly even, remember the cleansing waters of our baptism so that repentance and renewal are always with us? Can we rekindle the fire of the Holy Spirit as we felt it that very first time we dedicated our lives to the triune God? God loves the world so much that God wants every one of us to follow this way, this path, glimpsing the kingdom through the myriad distractions of life. Let us make this metaphor of birth our own, acting like newborn babies, drinking in each blessed new experience, fully trusting in the goodness of God and of this world and in the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now
please stand as you are able.